I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, a previously unreleased conversation with Charles Henry, president of the Council on Library and Information Resources, on the subject of cultural memory, its importance to civilization, and the potential catastrophe of a digital dark age in which massive amounts of culture are lost to the ether. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with Charles Henry. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that we've been working on getting the sh- on the show for a while now. Charles Henry, president of the Council on Library and Information Resources a nonprofit that works with libraries, cultural institutions, and higher learning communities to improve research, teaching, and learning environments. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and thank you for this opportunity. So, Charles, maybe you could tell my listeners a a little bit more about yourself. Um, So, of course, you work with the CLIR, uh, but maybe what does the work of that organization entail? Uh, Briefly, the, the council has been around for about 65 years. And it it began, oh, roughly in the late 1950s. It was an organization that was started by uh, a handful of um, university librarians and uh, some uh, folks who worked at the Library of Congress. And the concern, and this is, again, the late 50s, the concern was a proliferation, the unchecked proliferation of information. And the concern focused on all this uh all the data, all the new resources uh, that were coming out, there was a, um, a just a, f- a flurry of new academic books. Uh, this was the beginning of a real surge in publication. Um, there was also uh, a great deal of microfilm, microfiche, uh, and also this was the time of a uh, the burgeoning uh, television industry, as well as radio uh, and um what we would call video today, you know, film and newsreels and, and such. And the the founders of, uh, of uh, the council were concerned, one, that there was just this uh, mountain of, of uh, very important uh, information that related uh, largely to uh, higher education and, and uh, research and, and teaching, uh, that it was not managed in a coherent way. Uh, that it was often redundant with libraries collecting and collecting uh, and, and repeating titles uh, across the nation. So thousands of institutions literally collecting many of the same books. 
And so there was an issue of cost uh, as well as efficiency. So that's how we got started. Um, no one at the time had, I think, an inkling of what would happen when digital technology started to flourish uh, in the 80s uh, and then you know, really uh, reared its head in the 90s and until today, um, where we're at a point um, where I think I was reading some surveys that the more information is created in one day uh, than in all of our recorded history, uh, which is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, we haven't begun to grasp, I think, the the uh, the, the true total of, of data that's uh, sloshing around. So the original concerns, the urgency that got the my organization started um, prevails today. And so we we continue to address and wrestle with these uh, um, very very interesting challenges. If you could, for people that are unfamiliar, what are the pros and cons of this massive proliferation of digital information that we see today? Well, I think on the on the positive side, um, there's just a uh, we have we're able to learn um, and gather information about subjects and topics at a level of concentration. Um, and, and meticulously in ways that have been uh, not possible before. So it's there. There is a um, a huge opportunity to understand. Uh, we'll use climate change as an example. <clears throat> the amount of data that's um, accum accumulating on climate change is, is um, uh, in certain ways exhilarating. I mean, we're it's it's. Uh, a massive amount of information um, that that is going to be um, essential in, uh, to our survival, uh, to put it in pretty pretty blunt terms. Um, there's also the with digital technology, there's a, a much greater opportunity for voices that have been marginalized and and voices that have been unheard traditionally uh, are now able to be uh, listened to and able to be read. So there's this. Uh, ability for uh, the, everyone, people outside of of the mainstream, outside of the control of of um, the the more stringent academic kinds of uh, cultures, um, to have a voice also, and I think that's that's really important. Um, the downside is that in this um, tsunami of information, uh, the the tools to manage it are pretty crude. Um, keyword searching, which is often the the default, um, is really clumsy, um, and that's why you get seven hundred million hits on a Google search. Uh, we we really need to do better than that. We're also very far behind in um, understanding ways to preserve information that's born digital, um, and I I think that's that's a real issue too. You know, it it crops up. A lot of academic information is born digital um, courses, curriculum, um, papers. Uh, a lot of this is 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 lost quickly. Uh, there's link rot uh, at a scale that is also un unprecedented. So we have uh, this uh, the, a paradox. It seems to me a, a wealth of insight, a wealth of knowledge, um, a the possibility of uh, extending our wisdom in ways that we could only dream of 50 years ago. And at the same time, we're losing so much of it. And it's also siloed, firewalled, um, and otherwise difficult to access, if not impossible. So it's, it's fundamental to our culture. Um, and I think we are still struggling with how to make sense of all this. I'm curious just for your personal opinion on this. I remember when I was growing up, um, people would say, you know, once it's on the internet, it's it's going to be there forever. Um, and I think that's proven very mistaken. Uh, why do you think um, maybe popular culture got that so wrong? There used to be this, be this I think, utopian idea that uh, whatever was online would just stay there and um, th this stuff wouldn't disappear down the proverbial memory hole. Yeah, a lot of it, of course, does disappear. And you're right. Um, the the idea that once it gets up into the uh, 
into the ether, we call it, or more pro probably in a more contemporary way with the cloud that it's always there. Actually, the I would say the survival rate of information is pretty poor right now. I think what we miscalculated, we as a culture, we as a society miscalculated, was a couple of things. One is the effort, really, that it takes to keep uh, a resource link live and 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 manageable. Um, and that's that takes time. That takes effort. Uh, the um, I don't have the percentages right now in front of me, but the uh, the amount of data that was accessible three years ago or five years ago or you know wow ten years ago, uh, unless that has been uh, assiduously curated and the links updated. Uh, it's not available. It might as well be in a bin somewhere or in the old days in a cardboard box, um, you know, in the back of a, of a, a faculty member's office. Um, part of the problem, too, is the uh, really, you know, the the high rate, the accelerated rate of moving from system to system. You know, here's version four. Now it's version six. Now it's version 10. For the most part, those versions don't communicate with one another, and it's um, it reminds me. I think it was was it the 1960 census uh, where the cards that were used uh, on machines uh, by 1970 had become completely obsolete, obsolete, and they were unreadable. And I think I think we ended up having to go to Japan. Uh, to a museum of technology to get the machines that could then read the 1960 census cards. I mean, that's that was ten a ten year period and data that was absolutely essential to our our democracy and to our government was uh, uh, inaccessible until until that that problem was addressed. That's you know that's the old days of technology. We're looking at at uh, much greater leaps and bounds now. And um, it's just a struggle to keep up. Um, and when you're looking at literally billions of links um, and a fairly haphazard, I would say a non-systemic way of keeping things going, um, you're going to have problems. The Internet Archive was founded in part to keep a lot of this that would have been lost alive and meaningful. If you could, and I know this is maybe a side topic, but I, I think when we talk about digital information today, one of the big concerns people have, at least in, in my sort of world of uh, journalism and, and media, is uh, I guess the rise of digital disinformation and misinformation. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that topic, but um, I'd be curious if, if you have a take on it. I, I think, um, yeah, there is, I, it's pretty well documented that the um, amount of of wrong information, the amount of misinformation uh, that is um, flooding our um, our networks, and I uh, would say, you know, in a large part through social media, uh, I think there's a number of issues that are involved with that. Um, one is our training. You know, we are not, it seems to me, as um, as a society, and I'll focus on America for this, uh, I don't think we're very well trained to be discerning enough. Um, so if we see something that's online, there's a tendency to believe it because it's online. You know, I found this through a Google search or I found this through Facebook or these these platforms have a great deal of authority and that, that authority uh uh, comes with a, 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 you know, I think a, a, a false guarantee that accuracy prevails, and we know it doesn't. Another, so that's our training. I mean, that's our responsibility, and I think we're we've fallen fallen short on that. Uh, the, another piece of this, I think, is the plat the, the platforms themselves. Um, there are there have been attempts to to monitor what gets put up um, and the, the monitoring of of the kinds of divisive, highly partisan, false, downright you know, fabricated information continues to uh, to grow. Um, so these monitoring these um, you know self monitoring w within the platforms themselves 
don't seem terribly effective. And I think the last point is they're never going to be effective. And we are uh, always going to be a we, we are how to put this we are kind of our own liability in the sense that so many of these platforms uh, develop algorithms that are that take you purposefully to divisive, heated uh, information, disinformation, false information that gets you riled. And there's a very complicated cognitive and hormonal aspect to this uh, that I think we need to wrestle with. Um, it's almost like we're being manipulated by the algorithms. Oh, oh it's not. It's not almost. We are being manipulated, and very subtly and very cleverly, I think, in a, in a very sophisticated way, we're being played upon because we, uh, as as human beings, we are. Uh, predisposed in certain ways, wired um, to get our blood riled up, to get the hormones, you know, popping uh, when we read things that we disagree with, that are divisive, that are that are you know push us in in, in certain ways. Um, and the platforms know this; they could have algorithms that you know lead you from one you know search to another in a more innocent way that. And everything is fine, and you know you're kind of calmer at the end of the day, and it's a more serene world. That's not what they're after. They're after ads. They're after um, getting you to stay on as long as you can to look at these advertisements, and that how the, that's how they make money. And that long that that longevity of 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 viewing, of engagement, is large is largely dependent on. Uh, let me be fairly crude. How how pissed off are you about this? And those algorithms are really smart in that respect. So I think we're up we're up against uh, uh, we're up against ourselves in interesting ways. One thing I really want to get into with you is uh, this idea of preserving cultural memory and the vulnerability of digital information. Uh, and, and how we can protect and, and preserve cultural records in this sort of digital era. Uh, one thing in that regard that I always think about, I, I'm a huge cinema fan. I love movies, right? And it's interesting. I know a lot of filmmakers are very concerned nowadays about, um, say, art house and independent movies that are critically acclaimed when they come out on uh, a streaming platform, but they're not getting physical releases. So there's now being... These, these movies released that are very thoughtful, uh, often, you know, culturally diverse movies uh, that are only getting released on streaming. But once they're gone from streaming, it's almost like they've disappeared. Um, so we have a tremendous loss of, uh, I, I would say, cinematic knowledge being lost in the process of that. Um, but it seems like that's just one example we could use of how uh, a lot of data is being lost in the digital era. Yeah, I'm a, um, a a cinephile myself, and and uh, um, uh, resonate very strongly with, with with your observation. I think part of it has to do with money, um, and you know the big studios, a a, a, a Marvel comic series of of movies taken from the the Marvel universe. Um, is far more likely going to be preserved in a variety of formats because there's just hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars involved in profit centers and such, uh, or billions of dollars in some cases. The art house movie um, is, uh, you know, just doesn't have the money uh, for this, and that's that's an issue. And I think culturally, uh, we really need to be more aggressive as a, as a society to say that that we we've got to develop ways where these, let's say, smaller efforts that are nonetheless extremely significant um, and transformational in, in many cases are preserved and and carried through time. And we haven't, again, you know, I don't think we've, we've done that very well. All of this is, uh, from my organization's perspective, uh, thoroughly uh, compounded and and um, convoluted by climate change, and so in in a in the current uh, in contemporary in our contemporary times, 
we've got you know issues of money, issues of preservation, issues of data curation to keep a lot of this material up and and uh, um, accessible and and preserved over time. We also now have um, major environmental degradation that that we're facing, and we can see it more and more. The uh, the the sort of local catastrophes of desertification, of wildfires, of of rising seas, of of flooding in general, uh, and I mean, it, 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 we're in, from a cultural heritage perspective, uh, an archive, let's say, um, in the in Upper Midwest, uh, which is fairly secure and not susceptible to wildfires so much or not rising seas. But with warming temperatures, there's more kinds of insect infestation. So that these some are quite dramatic, like the fires in the water and and the you, you the, cut out um, there for the a second. You said, um, you said like the fires, and then it, it cut out. Could you repeat that? Oh sure. Like well, obviously, you know, there's it's it's easier to look at some of the more dramatic kinds of climate disruption, like the fires and like. The rising seas and the salt water in the middle of Miami streets and and that, but there's more subtle aspects, and one of those is uh, infestation. That as the climate changes, as it warms, for the most part, different insects come about that don't have any. Uh, uh, there's no predators, and the insects can affect and get into and affect and degrade paper and other kinds of uh, information media uh, in a, in a way that's quite devastating. And it's not just um, uh, it, money doesn't protect you from this. And and one example I use um, is a, a report, I think it was about a year ago, uh, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. was uh, is is uh, is now uh, facing um, flooding in some of the lower rooms of, of the, the Smithsonian and the warehouses, particularly from the Potomac. And it has to do with a warming climate. It has to do with uh, uh, changes in the water table. So an institution that says, you know, brilliantly run and protected and endowed uh, and, and you know, on certain ways, uh, almost culturally sacred is itself under considerable threat uh, for loss and the kinds of expenses that, that may be required to uh, to help mitigate this, so no one is no one's spared in this, and so it's you know the message is is I would say sobering. We have not only the costs of preserving very important information like like small movies and independent independent features, and and also research and observations and and you know, let's say archives community archives that are also often easily misplaced or lost uh, and then we have a planet that's burning and flooding and uh we have uh, so much work to do uh in the next 20 years uh, because we're being assaulted from from all sides including uh our own psychology uh, when it comes to these platforms and, and misinformation. So we're hit from, you know, every angle, inside and out. Uh. So I, I want to get into this idea of cultural memory and what we mean by that. But first, if we could, is part of the problem we're facing with regards to the, the loss of mass, mass amounts of data, information, art, um, is part of this due just to people maybe not wanting to spend the time to preserve that or i guess spending the money to preserve that is, is there an issue where um maybe we're placing profits before uh, preserving our culture um yes in the short answer and it's it's not just um sort of individuals or 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 even um you know companies that uh, some who have some that have money and and, and some that don't it's a cultural system that oddly enough, uh, in certain ways, undermines the cultural legacy. And when you look at uh, some of the uh, major focus of, on, on um, scientific information, and a lot of, if not the majority of uh, peer-reviewed and therefore prestigious um, and therefore authenticated uh, scientific uh, 
journals, scientific articles, scientific data, um, comes through uh, a, a very small number of major uh, presses and uh, uh, focused on on science. And we have, this is where, uh, if you're a, a scientist, you, you want to publish with Elsevier, you want to publish with Springer, you want to publish, and that's completely understandable. And that's where the prestige comes, and that's where the authenticity comes from. At the same time, there's absolutely no obligation of these firms, of these publishing houses, to preserve any of that information if they go dark. If if some of these firms go bankrupt, let's say, or they're sold to something else, or or they just fold, um, there's there's no provision that requires them to make what they have published uh, accessible in a persistent way. So, uh, you know, this is this is another um, really I, I think dis- disturbing aspect of this wonderful world of information uh, and and knowledge that we live in is that the universities, in this case, the higher education, has largely outsourced um, the uh, publication, the promulgation of its research um, <clears throat> into a system that is really unaccountable for preserving it. And um, this this is an issue. If you could, when we talk about cultural memory, what do we mean by that term and what what's at stake if we don't preserve that cultural memory if we don't keep cultural memory alive for future generations the cultural memory is a i would characterize it as a um a, a combination or a cruel a an accrual of of many different media uh, that forms a kind of matrix or spectrum of human expression. So a, a cultural, our cultural heritage is in large part a very complicated narrative of our nature, uh, um, what interests us and what attracts us, what compels us, <laughs> what we respond to. Um, so when you talk to me, I, in my in my mind, when you talk about the cultural heritage, you're talking about um, human nature and evidence of human nature and uh, uh, the um, contributions of our collective understanding of ourselves and the world that we're in. And so to lose that is then to lose a large part of who we are and, and our understanding of of who we are and it it comes about in there's different um there's i would say is probably two schematic but two general categories of of the of the cultural legacy one would be more tangible artifacts and those would be the sculptures and the built environment and uh the the paintings the museum works uh, the galleries uh, as well as the, um, the the printed materials and and the manuscripts that that we have that you can hold or you can see or they they have an objectification to them that's that's easily literally in certain ways grasp graspable. Uh, then there's also a, a part of human culture that's uh, more transient, and those are rituals. Those are various kinds of religious uh, performances, um, theater. Um, choral work, singing, um, language itself, and <clears throat> these are uh, these are more transient by nature, but they're also under threat as well. And one example is I'll go back to climate change. <clears throat> that one of the um, consequences of of detrimental climate change is human displacement, is the diaspora, and it's estimated uh, the estimations vary but as many as uh, over 100 to 150 million people may be displaced in the next uh, 30 to 40 years and the, the one issue of course is well there's the museums and the libraries that will be <clears throat> affected by this but there's also the language itself of 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 these displaced folks and uh what do you re- mean by that i'm just curious can you elaborate <clears throat> on the what's what's lost 
Right. If if it when it, take a when you when you look at refugee camps and the um, when uh, take uh, the the recent conflicts, let's say it's, it's Syria. We can focus on Syria very briefly and the, the Syrian diaspora. That a lot, many, many. I think it was over a million million people uh, or more were displaced. Many of whom went to Turkey and and uh, refugee camps there. The average stay in a refugee camp is about 14 years. That's that's close to a generation. So if you're in a refugee camp, you're away from home. You don't have your your roots. You don't have your culture around you. You're floating in a very harsh and, and unforgiving environment. A lot of what you remember and uh, what you would carry forward if you were you know in a more securely placed is going to be lost and the difficulty also is that your children the children in the camps um aren't going to be exposed to these kinds of um cultural uh traditions and that's going to be lost and the uh, when you look at um uh, refugees again uh they often leave uh under fairly dire consequences, and they take a few objects with them. So leaving a culture behind and then having in a backpack a couple of things that you deem precious, that's all you have. Um, and the uh, the possibility or the probability of returning home are actually pretty, it's pretty small. So while it's not an environmental catastrophe, um, this displacement that can be caused by political disruption, as it was in Syria, or desertification, as we're seeing in Africa right now, um, that is a huge disruptor of of the continuity of our cultural legacy, and one that is very, very difficult to reconstruct um, years later. So that's that's uh, uh, we tend to focus, I think. Um, uh, on um, waters rising like the Smithsonian and the museums are being going to be inundated or, or fire is going to sweep away um, some of these more tangible artifacts. Uh, that's true, um, but there's also a lot more subtle devastation uh, that we need to confront. I was going to say, I mean, one of the concerns I hear talked about a bit, but not always as much as you know, rising sea levels or, or the fires is, I think, what you're talking about. I mean, catastrophic climate change could lead to what would essentially be a climate refugee crisis, and that would affect, um, you know, people's culture. You know, it, it would displace them from their their home and their sense of culture. Yeah, I have a um, a friend of mine, um, and she, I haven't spoken with her for a while. She uh, te teaches at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and one of her areas of expertise is refugees and re refugee encampments. And um, she says she has given a lovely, brilliant lectures on uh, refugees and one uh, common practice once the refugees get settled in, in their camps, and which are, again, pretty pretty wretched, They'll often have a, a small plot of earth near their tent or where they're staying, and they try very hard to find plants, flowers, and uh, sometimes grains and, and other kinds of um, flora um, from their home country. So one, it, it, it strikes me as a, as a profoundly human impulse to try to recreate one's culture. And in this case, because they're, the artifacts are almost impossible to find um, and memory begins to fade uh, about the, the, the more um, intangible cultural aspects <clears throat> that you would plant a garden, that you would try to, uh, as best you can recreate what you remember from your home uh, through uh, a uh, uh, plantings uh, that are outside your tent. It's it's a uh, um, it's very moving um, and uh, quite unsettling at the same time. It sounds like, in your estimation, the biggest threat to cultural memory and, and carrying cultural memory on is climate change. Ultimately, is that correct? 
Yeah, it is. I, I would say climate change right now. And it, it you know, part of that um, clarion call is because we've been so slow institutionally and, and in a governmental way to to address this. There's been way too much uh, denial and obfuscation and, and misinformation about it. Another, uh, I would add also that when you say uh, climate, climate change is is probably the greatest is is the greatest threat to to our survival, you know, to to any kind of continuity or coherence that we've been used to, and this is going to be most disruptive. I think it's also important to say that we are the um, main drivers of climate change. Climate change uh, is a result of a lot of our greatest achievements. I mean, what we've done with with energy, what we've done to electrifying the world, what we've done with um, water management. Um, it's now coming back to to show us that um, you know we have overbuilt, we have overdrawn uh, our our assets and our our resources, and now we have to. Uh, we have to confront this. I mean, we've we've in an odd way put nature on a course that's very difficult for us to manage and could be self-destructive. Um, and that we've got to deal with ourselves um, as both agents of uh, of these changes and as hopefully agents of um, of trying to rectify or mitigate some of this. So um, it's. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, to me, it's it is perhaps the most uh, interesting conundrum in human history. Just a few more questions I want to touch on. I guess when we talk about keeping cultural memory alive, I guess, I mean, to me, this this would be an ignorant argument that people would make, but I I think uh, there are some people that would say, well, you know, people will just adapt and the world will keep turning, even if if we lose aspects of our culture. Uh, what do you say to those people that may have that view? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, I think I think what, what your question um, is, is addressing is that culture in some ways is generally, um, let's say ephemeral or, or perhaps a um, something that's, uh, let's say not quite essential in the way that electricity and water and, and the roof over our heads are. I, I, I think the, I, I would say that because the culture, because our cultural legacy um, is is a is a manifestation of our nature, that we could live without culture, but we would not be the same people. Uh, we would not be um, the we would not be human in in ways that we are right now and having enjoyed thousands upon thousands of years hundreds of thousands of years of 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 cultural expression and that's the question it seems do you want to live like that um but to me i think we need to value this cultural heritage as essential it's it's not peripheral you know it's not an option this is who we are and we are invariably storytellers and we are invariably wondering and inquiring and curious. And if all the manifestations of that curiosity and and that inquisitiveness is is melts away or is washed away or is burned away, then we are, I think, uh, a, in a different place, certainly, um, but in a different nature. Well, I, I know this is speculative, right? But what does that different place look like? Like, what what is the what is the nightmare scenario of 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 I guess um, the loss of culture? Well, I th culture. If you the loss of it is very difficult to intuit um, because you you need to sort of take away you know the question itself. And the contemplation of 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 that question and trying to resolve it involves all kinds of cognitive strategies that are culturally based. And I think that the worst case scenario uh, to me would be uh, a, a kind of uh, brutish environment. Uh, you know, you can see this. I, I think our literature and our films certainly 
are filled with apocalyptic visions um, where the the cultural uh, integrity uh, that we take for granted right now is gone. And almost uh, like a drift towards yeah, barbarism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, you get um, the Mad Max scenarios and uh, the, the um, Philip Dick, you know, name anything by Philip Dick. Uh, and, and there's, I think there's some truth to that, but again, it's so different. Just you know, here we are talking about it. We're looking. We're pointing to literary examples of the apocalypse being in an apocalyptic situation without the ability to understand it, or without you know the ability to transcend it, as you and I are transcending it now in this conversation. That that is um, pulverizing to me, and uh, it's something that uh, uh, is is almost impossible to imagine. Uh, well, you can imagine it, but I think it's almost impossible to to live with. Yeah, in a ways, it's it's something you can maybe theorize about, or I, I guess it, it it remains sort of intangible in a lot of ways. I think to our own minds, if that makes sense. That does that. that I think that's exactly right, um, and uh, we certainly don't want to be in a position to test that theory <laughs> but we could be um uh, but i you know again i'm i tend to be hopeful that we uh can gather around and uh work in a in a more uh correlated and coherent way to to address these uh these crises in in that regard what are some things that we could do uh to ensure the cultural memory is kept alive for future generations uh, is it just a matter of kickstarting the discussion or what else can we do well, um, I'll I'll give you an example of what my organization is doing right now, and uh, we're working. Uh, we call it Hidden Collections Africa, and it's working at a at a continental scale. Um, a few years ago, a consortium of cultural institutions approached us from Africa, and uh, the the concern was that one a very, very small percentage of what we would call African cultural heritage, <clears throat> probably about three to four percent, was digitized. So most of the the ninety six percent is in in um, analog uh, materials. And because of this, uh, it's more subject to degradation through desertification and fires and rising seawaters and all. So the question was, could we provide services? Um, based on the priorities of our colleagues in Africa to to begin a mass digitization of of this material and to make it accessible, to make it coherent, um, to make it um, more purposeful and reusable over time. And uh, we felt we we could do that given some of the projects we've been working on for over a decade. Um, that's, that's a response, and this is getting underway, and I, I'm hopeful that within the next year we'll begin a very large-scale project of digitization as well as training and curation and um, you know data management where those links are kept uh, robust, uh, as we've been talking about, the, the problem of... Uh, of the uh, the metadata and the links rotting away is is significant. So this this program is trying to address a number of those issues. And this this is the um I think it's called the digitizing hidden special collections and archives program. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that program we've been running for several years now, and it was on based on that program that we were approached by uh, our African colleagues to see if it could be. Um, extensible, if it could scale, and we think it can. So that's, uh, and and that program has been focused on, uh, especially more recently, on marginalized voices, on small community archives, on um, uh, a, a number could of. Could you delve into that a little bit more? Like, in, in what ways is it uh, moving towards um, hearing out uh, marginalized voices? Well, the the program right now is specific. Uh, the 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 newest version, the most recent version of digitizing hidden collections in the United States is specific to amplifying hidden voices. And that's the title of it. So we're um, the competition that we mount every year is now focused on <clears throat> that community, minority communities, um, communities that are traditionally not funded by projects like this, 
uh, indigenous uh, um, communities as as well, and we work closely with the First Nations in in Canada. So this this is a um, uh, meant to address specifically uh, those kinds of archives and resources that um, have traditionally been been overlooked. So in and with Africa, um, there's many similar issues of of funding and infrastructure and and that kind of thing that we're trying to address with this as well. Before we close out, I really wanted to ask you about uh, a project that you um, were involved in creating uh, known as the Digital Library of the Middle East, because I'm very interested in the Middle East and the culture of it. And I, I think it's something that needs to be preserved. So what's the origins of the Digital Library of the Middle East and what it does? Um, the origins, uh, this goes back oh, probably close to 10 years. And the project got started. We partnered with the um, Antiquities Coalition, which is a uh, an organization that's uh, that, that itself uh, came into being in response to the looting. So the project, the Digital Library of the Middle East, had its origins in um, the threat from ISIS uh, and the... Uh, you remember these images, I think we all do, of, of uh, 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 houses of worship. It could be mosques, could be churches, uh, could be synagogues that were being blown up by ISIS. ISIS trampling through Petra, trampling through these ancient monuments, um, going into museums and taking sledgehammers to, to, to uh, statues and other uh, iconic representations. So we got started... <clears throat> with the understanding that this threat could in fact persist and we would want to try to create digital surrogates of as much of the cultural heritage of the Middle East as we could. Um, and with the understanding that a, a digital surrogate is not the real thing, but it's better than nothing. And uh, we had one example was uh, there was a digitization program. Uh, I think it was it was in Baghdad and uh, several years before this, where 3,000 manuscripts were digitized, and then after the uh, just a series of political upheavals and, and uh, conflict, um, I believe 2,000 of those manuscripts, the physical manuscripts, were gone. So the digital archive was all that was left, and that was looking at this and again realizing that it's it's not the real thing, uh, but it's also something that represents very closely the real thing. So that's how we got started with the, the digital, library, digital library of the Middle East. And as the conflict lessened a bit, the political conflict, um, we continued with the project. And it's a uh, uh, it's got hundreds of thousands of records in it now. Um, and those records are contributed to by the uh, organizations, cultural heritage organizations in the Middle East itself. Um, a lot of the material is from private collections uh, in the Middle East and also a wealth of material from uh, European and American collections that pertain to the Middle East. So it's a it's a nice, uh, um, you know, amalgam of, of various uh, sources and, and uh, provenance. I just wanted to add to that really briefly, because I know you mentioned uh, the issues with looting and and, um, you know, Islamic State. But I remember back in oh, I think it was April of 2003, when the, the National Museum of Iraq, there was a huge looting incident. Uh, so I think this project that you're talking about with, um, you know, the Digital Library of the Middle East is extremely important, especially when we've had incidents like that, that just, you know, it wasn't that long ago, really. I mean, it's, you know, about 19 years ago that the National Museum of Iraq was looted that way. And uh, so much is lost. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate. Well, it is. And, and uh, just a very uh, a kind of a, a footnote to this, too. Um, it was in 2003 that um, after the uh, it was during the American invasion and the uh, troops uh, got into the secret police headquarters in, in Baghdad and the secret police uh, had been routed and they were in the basement and they found um, what looked like piles of wet paper towels. <clears throat> and those wet paper towels turned out to be very important manuscripts, um, school records, uh, religious uh, works uh, pertaining to the um, the Jewish community in, in Baghdad that had been stolen. 
Um, and then the bombing of the of the headquarters there had created uh, water breakages and leaks. So this material, uh, I think, was about 8,000 items, uh, eventually came to the United States with the National Archives and Record Administration, did a absolutely brilliant job meticulously restoring what looked like pulp um, back into these these uh, really lovely, magnificent um, resources, uh, these these um, manuscripts and some and books and and papers. Um, so that's uh, we have those materials in the states right now, and we're working on my organization is uh, is a custodian to to that collection. And that is also a part of the digital library of the, the Middle East, a more extreme aspect of, of the threat at the time, um, but indicative of what you can do uh, once uh, materials are restored and then digitized. Um, and, and the digital library of the Iraqi Jewish archives will, will last as uh, forever, we hope. Uh, just in closing here, um, I know we talked a lot about climate change being a a threat to cultural memory, but there, there's also other threats, right? Like I, I think in talking about the um, looting of the um, National Museum of Iraq, we can see in the ways in which war uh, can be a threat to um, cultural memory. So war, climate change, what are some of the other um, major factors in the loss of cultural memory in your view? Um, uh, indifference to, to culture is, is one. Um, going back to some of the points that you and I have been discussing, you know, putting culture as something that's a bit uh, ancillary or not as important, let's say, uh, to to our sense of self. Um, again, I profoundly disagree with that. Um, so indifference is up there. <clears throat> money, finances, that's another running out of money or, or inadequately endowing or inadequately funding. Um the culture, and this has to do with, and also policy. Policy is a threat too. If uh, you know, a lot of the scientific information is is a, a, as culturally apt as as a sculpture or a painting, and then we have this significant number of uh, scientific research that could go away tomorrow, literally at the flip of a switch or a server going down. Um, and uh, or a you know a major uh, publishing company deciding that it's not responsible for curating and continuing this material. So policy plays into that. Um, infrastructure. The um, National Museum of Brazil, you remember, burned not too long ago. Uh, adequate safety features is part of the threat. Uh, I'm not quite privy as to what really happened in Brazil, but part of the problem seems to have been um, a, uh, a failure to adequately update the uh, fire alarm system and the uh, fire extinguishing system. So it, it goes from you know giant catastrophic issues to policy issues to words on the page um, to uh, what kind of sprinkler system you have. Uh, they're all at play here. You think also that, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I thought I would throw it out here at the end. Is there also a, a question of um, how information can be concentrated in the sense of, um, you know, I, I think in some ways we we can end up we can end up concentrating information into um, you know smaller and smaller hands, you know, um, for for various reasons. Like, you know, I understand why there's paywalls on. New York Times articles, you have to pay these writers, but also that actually, in a way, can affect people's ability to get information. Um, you know, the price of, I know a lot of students in um, university that have trouble uh, getting their their textbooks or getting, you know, things like that. So is there also a problem with, um, you know, the concentration of information into too few hands? Oh, I think so. And, you know, with all the, this is just everything we've said uh, the, t today is it's just um, <clears throat> irony weaves throughout all of it. And so you have, you know, an unprecedented historic uh, growth of information, uh, an Internet that can at least potentially make all that information available. Um, and at the same time, the 
walling off of this information uh, that makes it very difficult to uh, for many, many people um, as, and uh, students uh, among them. Uh, if you're at, inst at an institution that doesn't have a lot of, uh, you know, financial wherewithal to have these licenses, uh, you don't get information like that. So it it is effectively non-existent, and the uh, the the uh, paywalls uh, with the journals and and such uh, is is another example of that. Uh, there's a lot of talk about openness and open resources. Uh, actually, that's a pretty difficult um, topic. Uh, there's uh, it's it's not it's not easy to be open, um, and I don't think we have adequately figured out what what that could mean and what that would mean for so many uh, disadvantaged populations and, and societies around the world. There's a there is a tremendous amount of privilege associated with all this marvelous technology, and I think that's to me um, troubling. I, I don't want to leave on a on too grim of a note, so uh, I guess I have to ask: um, where where do you have hope? Because it sounds like a pretty dark situation. But what are your hopes? I guess for the future of keeping cultural memory alive for future generations, and uh, how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Well, the fact that we're having this conversation is is promising. You know, uh, what would be far worse is if we didn't talk about it or we pretended that it didn't exist. So acknowledging that we are um, assaulted from from you know every kind of direction imaginable uh, is it's important to acknowledge that. At the same time, information uh, continues to percolate, uh, new insights are, are continue to be developed. Um, great new movies are, are popping up uh, all the time. And I think our job is to, uh, is to believe, and I do believe that we will, we, if we don't, we'll resolve a lot of this through new policies and new guarantees and new ways of organizing knowledge. And I think we can. Uh, we have to do that in a way that's collaborative, in a way that's uh, that fosters interdependence and not competition, um, that devalues uh, money um, in, in ways that is also very difficult in a, in a capitalist world. But I think we can do it. You know, we're, uh, uh, we're smart. Um, and we're also threatened, and uh, that's a pretty uh, uh, energizing combination of of, uh, of um, emotions. So, I as long as we can keep talking uh, and identify projects, identify processes and procedures and methods of uh, addressing these uh, exigencies, we're 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 moving along. Uh, it's never going to be as fast as we want. Right? I, I was just going to add to that um, because sometimes I feel like, um, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I'm the only person thinking about these issues uh, when I talk to other people about this, maybe at the dinner table or whatnot, or at my <laughs> uh, at the college I used to go to. But it sounds like from your experience, there, there may be more people out there that care about these issues than um, maybe I would realize at first or uh, a lot of people would realize. I, I would say yes, indeed. Um, and I would say that there are many, many profession professionals and, and professional societies <clears throat> that are more and more focused on on these issues and uh, willing and eager to to work together to uh, to address them. So I think that's the um, there there is there is light ahead uh, if if we can just work together and organize it and um, uh, begin to see ourselves as much more um, interconnected and interdependent than we have in the past. That, that's the this proliferation, the, this competition for everything um, has got is, has got to uh, recede. Uh, we have to see ourselves much more as a true, genuine and very large community of purpose. Well, I want to thank you again, Charles Henry, for coming on Parallax Views again. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Well, I, I would point them to our website, the Council on Library and Information Resources, and uh, we're I uh, we'd all 
always interested in you know connecting and with with ideas um, or concerns or you know uh, responses to this to this podcast. Uh, but but please follow us and and but more than that, you know, uh, jump in and uh, we will listen very closely. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Charles Henry of the Council on Library and Information Resources. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.